Zach, after that Monday Thursday joke, I think you should stick to acronyms. <laughs> Would you pray with me? God, we've come from busy days and busy lives to be here to encounter you. But God, I don't know where each person who's here tonight is coming from, what they've been through today. God, I pray that you'd still our hearts. I pray that you'd calm our minds so that we could hear. We could hear the truth of who you are and what your word says. God, open our hearts so that we might believe. We might believe the truth of your word. We might believe that that truth could change our lives forever. Father, we've come to hear. We ask that you would be faithful to your word and that you would speak. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. How many of you have a favorite, maybe family meal or time that you remember that your family always gathered together? There was always, maybe it was the same meal or the same time of year. I think often when we think about these things, it's around the holidays, especially maybe Thanksgiving and Christmas, but there are Easter traditions as well. I remember when I was a kid, my grandparents, my mom's mom and dad had a farm. And every year for Christmas, we would go to the farm. And the farm had some good things, it had some bad things, it had like no cable TV, so you didn't have anything to watch. But um, one of the things I remember about being at the farm was we always ate meals at the dining room table. And it didn't matter how many people were there, every meal except for the Christmas dinner was at the dining room table. And this table would just get more and more smashed and more and more tight as more people would come because it was surrounded by three walls. So it wasn't like we could really expand the table much. Everybody just got crammed in. And Grandma always sat, there was like two steps into the kitchen, and Grandma sat up above everybody at the bar with the, like, the leftover bowls. So whenever somebody needed something else, she could pass it down. And then we'd pass it back up. And Grandma never joined us for that, for those meals. But for Christmas dinner, that was the special meal. We went into the dining room. Out of the kitchen, it was this table that was kind of shoved against the wall, and really most of the time it just held pictures and knickknacks, and we never, you wouldn't even know it was a table, but at Christmas dinner, it got pulled out, and everybody got around the same table. We were a small enough family that we didn't have to have a separate kids' table. Everybody could sit at the adult table, and I remember those memories. I remember the stories that were shared about people I've never met. But I could t list for you name after name after name of people I've heard stories about. I could tell you stories of their life. And even though I was sitting at that table and not really wanting to be there, let's face it, at 10, I was much more interested in how do I get outside and play? How do I get away from these stories and listening to old people talk and share the stories? There's something about gathering around a table for a meal that does something in our lives. I think it does more maybe than we even think or we even see in the moment. Those family stories and traditions are passed down. Stories of faith are shared. And I might even venture to say that I think faith often develops around a table. As we sit as families 
and share stories and share things that are valuable and important and share a meal together. There's something about food and a meal around a table that transforms us. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was doing as he gathered his disciples together in that night. He was going to share them, with them a meal that would transform their future, that would change what they knew, and would put faith and impart faith into their lives. So as we think about those meals, as you think about those things, what does it mean in the busyness of life to sit down at a table and share a meal? Let's face it, if you were here with us on Monday, Thursday, or we were following Jesus in real time, much has happened since we were together on Sunday. If you take a look at the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has rode in on a donkey, he's walked around the city, and what he saw brought him to tears as he wept for what he saw all around the city. And then he goes to the temple, and you would think, oh, it's going to get better now. He went to the church. It'll be okay. And he, like, throws a God temper tantrum. I don't know what it is, but, like, he's righteously indignant, and he flips the tables and, like, yells at the money changers who are in the temple. He's challenged at every turn by the Pharisees or the Sadducees, or at one point they even pay guys to dress up in disguise to go try and trick Jesus. Like, I, I know what it's like to stand in front of a crowd and talk. I don't need you guys dressed up in costume trying to ask me tricky questions to get me to mess up. I'll do that plenty on my own. I, you don't need to pay people to do that. But that's exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees have done. They've paid people to come and trick Jesus, to stump Jesus. And each time he's answered their questions, he sat in the temple teaching every day. Communicating the truth of who God is and what God wants these folks to know. And it was in one of those moments that he watched the widow come up with her mite, her small coin, and give all that she had. In this same time, Judas has met with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he's actually agreed to turn his back on Jesus. And to betray him and to turn him over so that they can be rid of Jesus. And you think, well, that's quite a bit in four days. But it's only going to pick up in the next 24 hours of Jesus' life. As soon as the passage we're about to read in Luke 22 ends, Jesus will declare that Peter will deny him three times. Peter will swear he'll never do that. They'll go into the garden. Jesus will pray. The guards will come. Peter will pull out his sword and cut the guard's ear off. Jesus will heal the guard's ear, put it back on his head. And by that time tomorrow, he'll be hanging on a cross. Falsely arrested, falsely accused, falsely tried, falsely convicted. Peter will deny him. And it's in that moment, in this small time that Jesus says to his disciples, I have eagerly waited to share this meal with you. He's pausing in the middle of all the action. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin reading in verse 14. And as we read about this meal, a meal designed to help the disciples 
remember. That's what Passover was about as they get ready to celebrate Passover. It's about remembering. For the Israelite people, it was about remembering what God had done as they were slaves in Egypt. The way he provided, the way he'd sent Moses, the way he provided for them as they walked out of Egypt, and the way he provided as, he wa- as they walked across the Red Sea. It was about remembering Remember what God has done for our people. Remember what God has done for our ancestors. Luke chapter 22, verse 14 says this. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now, we could sit and argue all day about what it meant when Jesus said, this is my body, this is the cup, what is actually represented by these elements, and people have done it for centuries on end. And some of you are just waiting because the Baptist kid is about to try to explain Lutheran communion to you. And you're like, this is going to be good. The real truth is, I don't think it matters. I think we can argue and discuss, and it doesn't actually matter. Whether you think it's the real presence or not, what matters is that in that night, around that table, Jesus sat down with his disciples and he gave them the opportunity to experience the gospel with all five of their senses. To smell the wine, to taste the bread, to touch the elements as they came around the table, to hear his words speak that truth, and to sit and watch. Each time we celebrate this meal, we get a chance to celebrate the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ. Come, live a life perfect. Die on a cross for you and for me so that we could be in right relationship with God. And it's not just words we say. We get to experience it with every sense we have, just as they did in that night. And we get to remember exactly what Jesus taught his disciples to remember. This is a meal about remembering. Remembering what God has done. Remembering the work that God has provided. And as we as church family come around the table tonight, we come together. We come with stories 
of ways God has provided in our lives. You see, I think that's the first thing as we come to this table that we remember is we remember the God who provides. A God who provides the little things in life. A God who makes sure we are watched over, cared for. A God who we can cry out to and pray to our families for and who we can each stand up here and tell story after story of how we've seen God show up. Maybe in the form of a check that came in the mail when we just weren't quite sure how we were going to pay all the bills that week. And we went to the mailbox and there was a random check that we weren't expecting. Jesus says himself in Matthew chapter 6, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The God we worship is a God who provides. Maybe not exactly in our timing or exactly the way we imagined, but he is a God who provides and he provides so much more than just those needs. As we come and remember this meal, we remember that God has provided forgiveness for sin. For all the times we've messed up. For all the times we've made mistakes. For all the times we've done something to hurt or injure a relationship. God provides forgiveness. Not for sin's past. His forgiveness is complete for all sins, and we come to celebrate and remember that we are forgiven. Sin's past, sin's current, sin's future. God's grace is enough. We remember that God came and walked. God gave up his life for us. And in that, not only are we forgiven our sin, we're set free of sin. And I think we forget exactly what this means. For the Israelites, when they think about being set free, they were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt making bricks living in awful conditions. And when they said, the Passover has come and you have been set free, they remembered the journey out of Egypt. And it was a physical freedom. But for us, it's freedom from sin. It's freedom to not have the guilt. It's freedom to not have to sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. He continues in verses 17 and 18. Thank God, once you were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey his teachings we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin. 
as we come and we sit and we gather at this table and we remember what Jesus has done. He's a God who provides. The mundane, daily needs of life. But a God who provides the forgiveness and the grace that we can't provide on our own. One author I read says this, the same God who smiles on the brilliance of wildflowers and feeds a baby sparrow since his son is the atoning sacrifice for sins already committed. Jesus was the last and final sacrifice, the flawless lamb able to redeem all sinners and pay all sins once for all time. Jesus is God's perfect and complete provision, the answer to every person's deepest question and fulfillment of their deepest need. The fulfillment of our deepest need. Do we remember that as we come to this table? Not only does he provide those things, but lastly, he provides a hope. This life is not all we have. This life is not all there is. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. As we come to this table, we come knowing that this life, no matter how good or how bad, is not all there is. But because Jesus has come, because Jesus has lived, because he's died, because he offered himself as a sacrifice, we have the hope for eternity in heaven with God. We have the hope for something better that is eternal. Not because we've earned it. Not because we deserve it. Because it's been freely given. We remember each time we take this bread and drink this cup, there is a God who provides for us who's intimately involved in our lives, knows the details, and is willing to provide what we need. And the second thing we remember is that we have a responsibility for those who are not yet at the table. We've been given a command and a commission to go and to make disciples. There are people who are not yet at the table people we work with, people we live around. We have a responsibility. And as we celebrate this meal, as we come and remember what Jesus has done for us, we have to remember that there are others out there who still need to hear that. One of the stories I remember hearing was my great-grandma, when we would sit around the dinner table, she would tell the story of her husband who was an elementary school janitor in this little town in Pennsylvania. And it, she's like the most pious woman I know. And she lived in Hooker, Pennsylvania, of all places. And she would tell the story of one day at Thanksgiving, my grandpa, my great-grandpa locking up the school, getting ready to come home. And as he walked out the back door and around the corner, he saw this little boy who had no place to go. He had a coat, a small coat wrapped around him, just trying to keep warm. And he said, hey, why don't you come home with me? 
So he came home and Grandma had Thanksgiving dinner ready the next day, and he was there, and they ate and ate and ate, and she would tell, he just kept eating and eating, and I didn't know if he was ever going to stop eating. And then in the middle of dinner, he got down from the table, he laid on the floor, and he rolled back and forth. And my grandma said, I looked down at him, what are you doing? And he looked up at her with the most sincere look in his eye. He said, I'm making room for more. And she said, he did this like four times throughout the course of the meal. He would eat, lay on the floor, get back up, eat more, get down, roll around, make more. My great-grandma was one of the greatest women I know. But that story reminds me that we have to make room at the table. We rub shoulders with people who don't know that there's a God who died for them. Who don't want to believe that there's a God who died for them. Who don't understand that free gift of grace that Jesus came and offered. And it is our responsibility to walk alongside them. To love them. To invite them to this table. To invite them to come and experience the God who loves them. To see the God who loves them. To hear the story as we remember what Jesus did. I think it's interesting when I think about this. About who was at that first table. Yeah, Peter was there. Yeah, John, the disciple Jesus loved, was there. Judas was there, too. The one who had already betrayed Jesus sat at that table and was once again reminded of who God was. See, I don't think we get a chance to determine who comes to the table. Jesus didn't die for those people who've got it all together and got it all figured out. What's it mean for us to make space? To make sure that everybody has an invitation. Who do we need to invite? Who do you know? Who needs to know they're welcome at the table. So as we come tonight to celebrate, to remember, she said, each time you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. So as we come tonight to remember, what are you remembering? What has God provided for you? If you were to make a list of all the things God's provided, what would be on it? What stories of God's provision do you want to pass on to the next generation? What stories of the way God walked alongside of you and provided do you want to pass on to your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids? Who do you know 
who needs to be invited to the table. In the midst of our busy lives and a busy week, and some of you are going to be here three or four times this weekend, I want to invite you now to just pause in the middle of the activity. Just as Jesus said, I'm eager to celebrate this meal with you and paused in the middle of all the activity to sit down and share this meal with his disciples. And as we close this time, I want to give you a chance to just pray. Pray a prayer of thanks for all that God has provided and done for you. Pray for those people who you know need to be invited to this table. Pray that their hearts would be open to hear the invitation. Pray that God would give you wisdom to know how to give the invite. I want to give you space in just a few quiet moments and I'll close in prayer in just a minute to reflect and think about those two things. Let's pray.